the notion that national security is a human security issue and how do we redefine redefine national security as a women's security issue because what we've heard so far this morning is very much about securitization militarization marketization about national security being defined very much with those lenses which i think is a very male perspective about male leaders being at the table and not looking really at what are the drivers of the breakdown of national security and violent extremism and how is it that violence against women gender equality are often signifiers harbingers and early warning signs of a breakdown in national security and an early warning signs of imminent conflict and in imminent crisis but most often we are looking at other signifiers that are driven by a more male perspective so how do we redefine national security as a women's security issue how do we redefine a feminist foreign policy you spoke very evocatively of your own transition from being a diplomat to a development uh, and a human rights uh, leader and how you met with not just world leaders and diplomats and foreign ministers but with people in the in the in the marketplace women in the marketplace you listen to them in town halls of the world and you heard about their issues and you redefine national security and that's what secretary clinton did as the foreign minister of our country when she went abroad she had her negotiations with the foreign ministers and with heads of state and then she always insisted on having a town hall meeting with women and that then defined her perspectives that led to a more finer more ref uh, refined foreign policy that looked at the drivers and the causes of um, of violent extremism and that most often it is not only about securitization and militarization but it's about access to education access to healthcare access to food access to information and access to gender equality and that is what really creates national security so can you speak to that mushira in your own work in the middle east sure well uh, thank you very much i will build on what uh, minister arabi actually said and the uh, contribution that you have made Uh, you mentioned foreign policy and now you speak about human security uh, foreign policy used to be something up there no longer now we live in the time of the people and the human rights of the people human rights of every individual without any discrimination as to gender religion ability racial origin any no discrimination whatsoever and national security is now a human security issue and we can just look at the so called arab spring and the havoc it brought to the middle east because people 
were not and are still not enjoying their human rights in full, let alone without any discrimination. We speak about a global uh, uh, village, we speak about international education, while we see the quality of education that you receive here is really what we call quality education. And you go to other places and you find dismal education that lacks any quality whatsoever. Not only that, it teaches, the only thing it teaches students is rot learning. What does it mean? It means that me, the learner, I'm a passive recipient of whatever the person is teaching me. And this really has fed into what Minister Arabi called terrorism, what you hear in the U.S. say uh, uh, violent extremism, and you can put any label on it, but really it has meant more conflict, more marginalization, and more exclusion, and more alienation. So human security now is the most important component of any state soft power. If you have a coherent population, population that understands what's going on, and when I say population, it means the rich and the poor, the north and the south, the able and the disabled, it means everybody equally. And this is what has become very important now, and this is exactly why I tell you the Khashoggi situation. Let us not lose uh, uh, you know, the right perspective. Perpetrators must be brought to justice, but does not mean that you bring havoc on the entire nation because the havoc will not remain indoors or within the national territory. It will spill over. And we talk now about the cold peace between Israel and Egypt. We're not happy for this cold peace because when President Sadat sacrificed his life for this peace, we wanted to have it normal, normalization, normal relations. We didn't have this for the whole gamut and all the questions that were raised and the answers that you were given. Speaking about women, uh, women are human beings, and uh, rights of women are human rights. If we, if we say that every uh, uh, citizen must enjoy his or her rights without discrimination, this applies primarily to women because they constitute 50% of the population of any country, let alone certain countries like Germany. Uh, uh, after the war, uh, women were more than men because many men uh, lost their lives in the, uh, in the war. Uh, now, uh, security, national security, human security, human rights of women have taken a leap when the Security Council of the United Nations has uh, become in charge of uh, women's rights, women's human rights. And I it, it, it's called the Agenda for Women, Peace, and Security. And the Security Council passed Resolution 1325 in 1990, whereas this uh, resolution talks about 2000, I'm sorry, so you're right, 2000, uh, 
which, which talks about the protection of women uh, during armed conflict, the participation of women uh, and having a seat at the table either to resolve conflict or to build peace or to rebuild, reconstruct societies after the conflict. And uh, it, uh, it really talks about women as peacemakers, peace builders. So we have a, a very good opportunity now to ensure women's security, human security, global security through the role of many stakeholders, the most influential so far, in my view, as someone who is specialized in the UN, is the Security Council being involved. Because the Security Council is the, 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 the board of trustees that govern the world. It's, it's you know, but unfortunately, despite uh, now the lapse of 18 years after uh, the adoption of, uh, of 1325 and a multiple other uh, resolutions that has really pushed the ceiling up for the rights of women. Rape is now a crime against humanity, which really invites the application of Chapter 7 of the United Nations. It's not really operationalized. It's still mere talk. And this brings us to national applications, and it brings us to the ethics. You were talking about ethical problems in, uh, in international relations. Uh, sometimes I wonder when I sit at this big uh, hall of the General Assembly in New York, and I listen to speeches by certain heads of states, my goodness, they make beautiful speeches, beautiful speeches, but some of them will not dare even say it at home. I'm not talking about application or implementation. So this is the ethical problem now. We, uh, we the United Nations was established for uh, maintenance of international peace and security. This is number one. Number two, for, the, uh, 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 guarant for guaranteeing the human rights, for assisting member states to guarantee the rights of its citizens. So we really need to move on into the implementation, and that is why the world now is not uh, a safe place. Uh, many wars... And wars now are more dangerous than before because these wars are the manipulation of the minds. Uh, you uh, leave people uh, fall uh, victims for ISIS and other hate speech promoters, and they become fuel for the engines of wars and killings. And we talk about ISIS in Sinai or ISIS in Iraq or Syria. Let's talk about the quality of education. Let ISIS form a political party. Let them do whatever they do. But let me educate my children, my young people, and let them face Daesh or ISIS or you name it, and let them challenge them and let them refuse their logic. Let them refuse the orders to go and kill this person 
for, for this or that reason. This is how we enjoy diversity and we can have critical minds to sift through what uh, we are being bombarded with. So two points, Mashira. So from Malala to the girls of Boko Haram, there is a war against girls' education and um, girls are being sold, Yasidi girls are being sold in the markets for the price of a box of cigarettes. And girls' bodies are being used as tools of war because girls' bodies are cheaper than a machete. Uh, so that's, that's the reality that we face. And then we have Security Council's Resolution 1325 in 2000, which for the first time defined women not uh, only as victims of war, but as agents of peace, and that they should be at the table as peacemakers and not only as victims of war. Then on the other hand, we have research, evidence-based research to show that states with high gender equality indicators are less likely to engage in military conflicts. States with high fertility rates are nearly twice as likely to experience internal conflicts. Gender equality is associated with stronger states' adherence to human rights. Higher levels of women's leadership translate to lower levels of violence in conflict and gender equality in political representation is associated with lower corruption. And countries that empower women with opportunities to thrive economically and socially are more stable. So we have this evidence to show that when gender indicators are strong, countries, that it is a determinant of a country's stability. And that gender inequality and violence against women is a determinant of, of instability and crisis and conflict. So given that, we still have governments and even to some extent the Security Council ignoring, ignoring the rights of women as important national security measures. But when you were minister, uh, you made sure that this was part of the political agenda. You strove to uh, redefine the children's rights law in accordance with human rights norms, and you drafted the first uh, female genital mutilation law uh, under a lot of challenges. So you saw that FGM was a national security issue. It was not just a women's rights issue. It was a women's rights issue, but it's a national security issue. It's a foreign policy issue because you use that to create alliances with other countries in the region. So I want to put that out there for our students, and I'm going to go straight into, um, into questions and answers. Our student interrogators are very, very enthusiastic about talking to you about those issues because they have read your story, and they're very familiar with your narrative. So I'm going to start with our second session of leaders, the leaders of the second session, so that they could uh, challenge you. Can I just... Yes, uh, Your Excellency? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can I just, before you move to the questions, I want to say that FGM, female genital mutilation, used to be an African problem. It used to be in 29 African problem. No longer. No longer. Now, FGM is a big problem in Europe. It's a huge problem here in the U.S. 
with the migration and people coming, bringing their habits. It has become a global issue. The first meeting we had was in cooperation with Italy because Italy was a, a country that had many cases before the law. Uh, uh, mothers going to courts uh, accusing the uh, Italian government that it was unable to protect her daughter, that her father took her during the school holidays, went back to Somalia or Tanzania or whatever, and the girl came back to tell the horror story of her circumcision. So now it is a global issue, and the figures are rising, especially for the U.S., for the U.K., with the uh, uh, immigration. Okay. So, who's going first? So we have Marua, Joel, uh, Farah, Anissa, Miriam, Fumania, who are going to be our leaders for this session, our student interlocutors. Who's going to go first? But the mic is not working. <laughs> you can be loud. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can hear you. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Just just be loud. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. to ask, okay, um, one of the major themes that we're touching on today is this tension between an unraveling of international institutions and international borders and norms and the rise of national and local and yes. domestic mm -hmm. um, yes. interplays. Um, so I wanted to ask how, where does the onus or the burden or the responsibility fall when we have this chasm between the international and the local? Um, in implementing these concepts of human rights and international norms, um, especially when some local actors may see international institutions as either unrepresentative of themselves. You mentioned the Security Council as a, one of the forums. Many people see this as illegitimate. It's not representative of global power dynamics, et cetera, et cetera or either they see it as undermining local groups and their own actors and efforts and their own means of implementing. So I wanted to get your take on um, the dynamics of the field and how international institutions can respond if they have the responsibility or even um, the, the privilege to respond to these issues or if they should be addressed more at a local level. Thank you very much. This is a very important uh, point. And uh, last year, 2017, the General Assembly session, where heads of states come to make their uh, speeches, this was a very, th this was practically the topic: uh, how to inform, uh, to enforce our multilateralism, and how to make citizens in very far corners around the world feel that the United Nations, for instance, or the African Union, the League of Arab States, or whatever uh, regional or international organization represent them. Uh, I see the dilemma uh, because, uh, again, I come to your question about ethical problem. 
uh, one ethical problem is one of the pillars of the UN system is equitable geographical representation or equitable geographical rotation. This is not applied. If you look at the UN uh, bodies and see uh, whether the uh, representation in, within the bureaucracy or the leadership, high-level management, it's not equitable at all, number one. Number two, the UN uh, other uh, institutions, and I'm generalizing, and this is not really good because when you talk about uh, the European Union, it's not like when you talk about the United Nations or the League of Arab States or the African Union, but uh, the bureaucracy has become a burden itself within these institutions, and most of the budget go to the bureaucracy, doesn't uh, uh, go to projects applied on the ground to benefit the people. So the people actually don't know the EU and don't know some of, of these uh, uh, institutions. And this is the big challenge now for poorer countries, looking at, at a, a, a strong country like the U.S. stop paying their contribution to key uh, U.N. institutions, uh, while these poor countries are paying, and they're not getting anything in return. I think this is a big ethical uh, challenge. Uh, uh, Dr. Rangita mentioned that I ran for UNESCO Director General. I uh, noticed that when you go on the ground and ask people about UNESCO, nobody knows what's UNESCO and what UNESCO is doing. While UNESCO is mandated primarily to work on education and culture and heritage, uh, you see that UNICEF, the United Nations Children uh, uh, Fund, a uh, fund for children, has overtaken UNESCO when it comes to education. Uh, yet, when you go inside UNESCO, you don't see any concern that UNESCO has lost its leadership when it comes to education. And now, with the world suffering from terrorism, there is no way to fight extremism, terrorism, you name it, except with education and culture. You have to... Uh, uh, provide quality education as a deterrent against these uh, hate groups, the hate speeches. Uh, culture, you have to celebrate cultural diversity. You have to uh, teach people that being different is an asset, is not a minus. And when the world is one color, it's very boring. So this is really the, the, the biggest uh, uh, challenge that faces UNESCO uh, uh, right now. Uh, I'm trying to, yeah, with regards to human rights, I served as an expert on human rights uh, committee for eight years, and I have to say it has changed me absolutely. Now I can see the world through a human rights lens because it's very clear and everything falls in place nicely. One of the big successes of the United Nations, notwithstanding the, the failures I spoke about just now, is human rights. This is a big success story for the United Nations, that now we have in place a solid human rights system that started with the Universal Declaration on Human Rights and then was translated into the two covenants on civil political rights, economic, social, and cultural rights, and then CEDAW uh, for women, children, people with disability, racial discrimination, torture, you have it. 
conventions that people signed, and these conventions, when people sign it, I mean, when states ratify it, it establishes legal commitment and legal obligation on the states to fulfill the rights of its citizens. So this is a big success story for the UN yet. When you go inside the different uh, organs, you find that they are not applying a human rights approach. And you find that there is not enough coordination between these bodies, whereas when a country appears before one of these committees, you have ready a list of questions. Uh, you tell this country you have FGM, you're not doing anything about it. The quality of your uh, education is so poor. Refugees are locked up in camps and they're discriminated against, blah, blah, blah. This is not happening. So I think the, the UN, which is the biggest uh, uh, institution that everybody's looking at, need to put its house into order. And states must be obliged to... Uh, ethically speaking, meet the commitments that they have voluntarily accepted. Anissa? Okay, I think that's working. Thank you again for joining us today. It's really an honor uh, to have you all at Penn Law. So I wanted to follow up on Joelle's question and bring in another aspect of what you've been speaking about, which is education. And my most recent work has been primarily in girls' education and early grade literacy in countries where the education systems are quite poor. And most of our gender-based educational interventions have been focused on girls. Girls' empowerment, skill building, preparing them to go on to secondary, tertiary education, to join the economy, essentially. And so, with the points that you've been making about education as a tool to combat extremism, how do you view the need for gender-based intervention specifically for boys? Because we have talked about sexual violence, we've talked about extremism, militarization is a very male problem. So how do you view the need for that? And in a slightly related question, how do we create enthusiasm for gender-based educational interventions? in places where both the educational quality might already be good, but access is lacking, or gender sensitivity is lacking, or in places where the educational quality may not be as high. Anissa, uh, before I uh, turn the floor, uh, turn the mic to Her, uh, her Excellency, I want to share with you a story from her own journey. When she drafted the FGM law, she made sure that she built male allies, male allies who were in powerful positions, from the mullahs to the male political leaders to the fathers of the victims of FGM. So she had fathers of young girls whose lives had been ruined because of FGM, who had died because of infection, go and make public service announcements about the horror of FGM. So building male allies was an important part of her strategy. Another part of her strategy was to really universalize education in terms of harmonizing it with the cycles of agriculture in Egypt so that during harvesting, children, boy child and the girl child could stay at home and help the family and when there was no household duties, you could go to school. So really understanding the rhythms of this community, the rhythms of the agricultural society in creating educational plans was a very astute and strategic vision that Her Excellency brought to her work. 
Thank you. Thank you very much. I actually built 2,700 schools, small schools, girls-friendly schools. And sorry, we always focus on the gender issue in favor of girls or women because historically they've been discriminated against. And if you go through the data, you will find that more girls don't go to school than boys and more girls are victims of violence than boys. But you're absolutely right. We should not overlook boys because uh, you mentioned boys are being recruited now uh, into uh, uh, very harmful uh, practices. And this brings me back to the quality of education. I mean, how can I base the education on critical thinking? That not everything you're told, you take it for granted. You have to think about it, reflect, express your views, and bear the responsibility of the views that you are expressing. And this applies to boys more than girls. Uh, if you go to poorer families, you'll find that if they decide to send children to school, because some of them don't, they send boys and keep girls at home. Uh, they uh, prepare girls to become wives at a very, very young age. When someone is sick at home, they try to treat the girl at home, but take the boy to the doctor. That's why, you know, uh, when, when you go down the, 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 the economic ladder, a lot of gender-based discrimination in favor of males. But we must guarantee and implement the human rights of every child without any discrimination. We keep talking about quality education without identifying what is really quality education. And I have to say that the Convention on the Rights of the Child has clearly stipulated the aims of education uh, to uh, enable the child to reach the maximum of his or her ability, to prepare the child to be an active citizen in a democratic society, so on and so forth. It, we have Article 28 and 29 of the Convention on the Rights of the Child, and we also have a very important document that the Committee on the Rights of the Child has elaborated on the aims of education. And again, this is an ethical problem that when you go across the board, you will find that the quality of education in the majority of countries, in the majority of global population, is dismal, really, as it compares to what they have ratified. Every single country has ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child, except the United States and, uh, uh, well, Somalia said that they have ratified, and South Sudan say they have ratified, and this leaves the United States. And Iran. Iran has ratified. Has, yes. ratified. Yes. They ratified. So I think now it's only the United States. Of course, it's good for the U.S. to be alone because the United States is so big, and it's cool to be alone. Uh, that's why we wanted South Sudan to be with the U.S. or Somalia to be with the U.S. because this may push the U.S. to ratify. But the U.S. ratified the two optional protocols uh, of the convention, and uh, 
it submits regular reports on the two uh, optional protocols. So I really underline quality education and reform of education. Uh, and, and, you know, when you speak about quality education, you hear them say, we will build more schools. Okay, fine, build schools. But I would say, if I bring the children, put them in a garden in a, under a, a big tree, but leave them with a well-trained teacher, a teacher that will give them the space to, to debate, to argue, to reflect, to speak their mind, to speak about their fears, their problems. This is much better than the physical construction of a building, really. And this is what we are lacking. If you look at international aid and the amount of money allocated for education, very, very small. If you look at national budgets and the amounts of uh, 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 national resources allocated for education, again, it is very, very low compared to armaments, for instance. So uh, we say allocate money for education first and then distribute the remaining on the other items of the budget, because this is where national security lies, really. And uh, it's still a dream. We still have many, uh, many problems. And of course now, with the refugees and education of refugees, it's a big problem that we will see the spillover effects in two or three years, or maybe five years, uh, because uh, some people have missed many years of, uh, of education. I actually just have a very quick follow-up on that, and we've seen that in, our, in my own work working at an international NGO, that it's been, a lot of the work has been around changing donor mindset and government partner mindsets around the building of schools versus assessing the quality of education exactly. through metrics. Exactly. And so donors, oh, well, build the building. And, 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 uh, and having physical activities, play, leisure, during the, uh, the day, the school day. Some children never have, they don't even have a playground. And that's why the amount of violence and frustration inside them uh, increase. Well, for me, it goes even further. Just the, um, just the threat that a girl's education poses to certain minds and certain ideologies. Secretary Guterres once said, what is it about a girl with a pencil that so frightens a man with a gun? Yes. And Malala once said, they just burned down a school. Why did they do that? Because the school had any case stopped functioning but you're still going and bombing that school building when the school is a non-functioning school for girls. So there is that threat of the symbol. The symbol of a girl's education itself causes great fear in the minds of certain ideologies and certain men because they know that an educated girl is the most powerful weapon against extremism. And another uh, ethical problem, really, which we see internationally, these militias and political groups that deters girls from going to school, that abuses women, nobody really talk about this. We are only concerned with the political uh, jargon, but nobody looks at the abuse of human rights. Uh, we talk about democracy and these militias should be 
given the chance to uh, govern. I mean, how? How? When, if you look at uh, the Brotherhood when they governed in Egypt in 2012, the first bill that was presented to the parliament that was controlled by the Islamists at that time was to, uh, to, uh, to amend my, uh, my law by lowering the minimum age of marriage. Uh, I, I raised it from 16 to 18 because the definition of the child is any person below the age of 18. So they wanted to bring it down. And some people said, you don't put a minimum age. It's uh, when the girl matures, she can marry. And there were some people who came on public television and said she can marry as young as uh, five years old if she's fat. On public television, they, they, they said that. And the other thing is to abolish the law criminalizing female genital mutilation. They said, leave it to the parents to decide. If they want to cut their girl, it's their prerogative to cut their girls. So this is severe violation of human rights, and we don't see anyone objecting to this. I mean, internationally, this is a violation of human rights. It, it's not separable from governance. It, it is at the core. We talk about governance, democracy. This is democracy. How do you expect a girl who never went to school, who married at a very young age and was brutally mutilated, to have a seat at the table and be able to to really raise a generation and, 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 and benefit her country, she, she, she can't. And, and this is the, the, the ethical uh, discrepancy that we have to uh, pay attention. Uh, under the guise of democracy, I can encourage a, a, a breach of intrinsic human rights. Absolutely. How can a woman have a seat at the table when she's been brutalized by FGM, yes. when she has been denied access to education? I think those are fighting words, that when we have these short-term policies of bringing more women to decision-making uh, roles, we don't understand that the root causes, what are the ways in which the playing field is unequal for women and girls. Fumanya? Good morning, Your Excellencies. Thank you so much for being here. I feel so honored and inspired to be able to hear from all of you. Um, what you just said actually segues perfectly into my question. I was born in Nigeria where FGM is still widely practiced. And what's so interesting is that it's practiced equally in rural areas and like cities and also by uneducated people as well as people with postgraduate degrees. And so I love that you talked about how you've used the law to sort of bring that change. But as you've already mentioned, there are limitations to the law because people like to amend it. Or for instance, in Nigeria, though there's been a federal ban since 2015, it only triggers in Abuja automatically and other states have to adopt it, which they have failed to do. Um, so what can we do to sort of change the mindsets and the mentalities and the cultures so that we can reach the gatekeepers of these practices to make the reform more generational and the effects of what you are trying to achieve through legislation more far-reaching and long-term? Thank you very much. Actually, FGM is the most prevalent, undocumented gender-based violence. More than 30 million women globally are victims of FGM and they expect that around 20 
million more are threatened with FGM. Unfortunately, you cannot just criminalize FGM because this has been uh, ongoing for centuries. Uh, clandestine uh, crime and uh, it has been uh, covered in a devilish way to make it a celebration. It's a purification. It makes the girl more marriageable. Uh, it uh, helps her stay uh, disciplined, control her sexual desires. So it happens underground. And you criminalize it, you push it even more underground. So what we did, I uh, started by girls' education. And before we started talking about girls' education, we raised the awareness of the society as to the value of the girl child. That when we tell the father who refuses to send his girl to school, when you educate your girl, she'll be able to read the road signs for you when you go to the doctor. She'll be able to read the prescription so that you take the right medication. So the father takes ownership in educating his uh, uh, girl, and this applies to the entire local community. And through schools, you can raise awareness of FGM. You can intertwine it in the curricula, in the daily activities, and build the support of the local community. This is how we did it. We started by the girl child, then we built schools, then we started talking about the price they pay for committing FGM. Uh, health problems, psychological problems, uh, problems affecting the children, problems affecting her husband, and this is key, the husband, the male, key. The, when, when you get the support of the males, you win 75% of the battle, really. And when you raise the awareness and raise the hype against FGM by providing the information about the evils of this practice, we started having village declaration. Entire village would say, we will not do this again. With this public declaration, you support the people who do it because of social pressure. And you have to reward it. You have to reward it by building health clinics, by building a theater, so that they feel rewarded. And you have to bring on board the support of the media, the religious people, because like you said, it is exercised by Christians, Muslims, uh, Jews, uh, non-believers. It's practiced by everybody in a certain location because of the myth uh, behind it. So when you make it a cultural, uh, you know, change and the youth lead this change, you are a winner. After this, we went with the law to the parliament. And the draft has been approved by the local communities because they have to see this as their amendment, not someone coming from Cairo with something foreign to them. And that's why when we went to the parliament, uh, we had already uh, garnered the support of some key members of parliament to 
you know, raise the voice immediately at the beginning, like to hijack any attempt to abort this. And this is really where diplomacy play a part, being a diplomat, how to prepare the ground for the, the legal uh, criminalization. Otherwise, it will not work. And it worked. And we criminalized it. And now Egypt is among three countries globally where the rate declines. It declined from 97% to 55% globally, nationally, you know. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a long uh, road, but this is how you should do it, and you cannot jump uh, by, by just going uh, with criminalization. Uh, so when the uh, Muslim Brotherhood tried to uh, amend this law and decriminalize uh, FGM, it was the local community, the NGOs, the civil society that stood against them and prevented them from uh, passing this bill. Not only that, now we have harshened the penalty for the uh, FGM, uh, both for the uh, practitioners and for the doctors who would do it, and the perpetrators. Now, a father can go to jail or a mother can go to jail if she takes her daughter to the doctor or the midwife to do this. Farah? Where you come from? Ah, um, oh, okay. Yes. Thank you very much. Uh, you really have touched on a very delicate, very, very delicate issue, and this, is, this has to do with awareness. Uh, and that's why I, when I started talking, I said when states ratify these conventions, they are legally bound to implement human rights. How to implement human rights? First step is raise awareness of these rights. 
and what it means for the society. And this applies here to FGM. I want to tell you that a big problem we discovered was that the judges, the uh, law enforcement agencies, they all hesitated very much to penalize parents and family members. Not only that, when we are drafting a law, they tend to put exemption for first or second degree relatives in human trafficking, in organ trafficking, in FGM. And when the judge has a case, it was easier for the judge to uh, issue a verdict and penalize the doctor or the midwife or whatever, but not the father or the mother. We had a historical case where the father was sentenced. And we were very happy for this because it sends the message that the doctor or the midwife or the practitioner would not lay the hand on the girl if you did not bring it, bring her to the, to, uh, over there. So you are the first perpetrator and you are the first person that will be punished. But you have to tell them. And that's why the role of the media is very important, the religious leaders and the doctors, all of this. Of course, doctors, we had to tell them that in your medical school, you never read anything about FGM. So it's not part of your uh, profession, and there is no necessity uh, whatsoever because sometimes they can have a, a leeway by the necessity. They said that, uh, this was necessary. So it's very important to raise awareness, but also to show them that you mean business. Uh, 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 laws must be applied, because in many cases you will struggle to have the law, and then the law will be shelved. So we were very happy to see this case where the father was uh, sentenced, and we go and, and, and push it. But I have to tell you, I'm very sad you said you have this in Pakistan, because uh, when we were promoting this, we, I used to tell them that this is a geographic problem, not a, a, a religious problem. And I used to say, Indonesia, Pakistan, they don't know FGM. The Gulf countries, they don't know the FGM. And now you tell me Pakistan. This brings the issue of social media and the, uh, you know, the, the ease with which information, you know, moves, uh, that uh, evils uh, travel with it, you know? And we have to really caution against this. Uh, I, uh, I'm, I wrote a chapter on FGM, and I, uh, it's not yet published. This is with regards to the SDGs. Uh, and I said that FGM now uh, is uh, a problem in countries which never had it, like the U.S., uh, Europe, and in other countries like uh, Asia where they uh, never had it. But they say, And somehow uh, Muslims, I don't know what's wrong with Muslims. I'm a Muslim, so I feel free to <laughs> criticize. They are so dumb to take ownership alone for any bad thing so easy, with, with so much glamour, that now many people across the globe think that FGM is a Muslim thing. It's not a Muslim thing. It's Muslim, Christian, non-believers, Jews, uh, whatever. And, and, and of course, circumcision for boys uh, is an issue, but it is a very minor issue, because in the case of boys, you just remove a skin, while for a girl, you 
mutilate an organ that has critical functions. So uh, that's, that's why we, we pay attention to this. I like the way in which you said evil travels easily. And I think the only way you combat that is to have good ideas travel easily. I think that's the only way in which we can, which we can uh, attack the ways in which evil travels easily. Did you have a wrap-up question? And then Merua, yes. Um, well, first, to be fair, um, I would say it's exactly I hear you. Go ahead. You have to tell them it's not part of the religion. This was step number one for Christians and Muslims. Tell them this is not part of the religion. And just a quick follow-up question. So in your answer, you mentioned the practitioners and the parents. Um, and I think that there's any aspect of blame on religious leaders that emerge. So I'm going to, Farah, in the interest of time, I'm going to get have Merua and Miriam also ask their questions and comments so that then we can take it as a whole and have you answer because some of it may be interlinked. Yes, thank you. I think those two questions can be taken as a whole because on the one hand, Farah's question was Islamic leaders, leaders in the religion, and then leaders in government. And sometimes they make unusual bedfellows. True, 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 true. Yeah. Well, uh, religious leaders, I hope there will be the day when we have uh, uh, legal orders against some people who call themselves religious leaders because there is no such thing as religious leaders. We didn't have this. This is a new thing that has uh, creeped, you know. Uh, so is it something to do with the politicization of Islam that there is, are this it idea is of religious definitely, leaders? definitely, definitely. Now you talk about Sunni and Shiites. I graduated from college. I became a diplomat. I came to the United Nations here. And people asked me, uh, where are you from? Egypt. What religion? Muslim. They asked me Sunni or Shiite. I didn't know. 
I had to phone my father in Egypt, ask him, are we Sunni or Shia? He said, what a question. Really, this is a political invention. So if we can bring uh, the people who call themselves uh, religious leaders to justice, because some of them disseminate hate speeches, and some of them are very reasonable and very wise. Unfortunately, they don't carry a license. Anyone can be, uh, tomorrow I can come in a different outfit and be a religious leader, you know? And nobody will, will, will prevent me from this. So I think we're getting there. We are getting there by raising awareness, by questioning them. And now in Egypt, we have some people who are now prevented from appearing on the silver screen. To, to wash the people uh, with the wrong uh, ideas. Now, to come to your uh, question about how I made it, I want to tell you that I am like millions of Egyptian women, millions of Egyptian women. Uh, it's the image people abroad have about uh, Egypt and maybe other countries and Egyptian women. It's normal case to go to school, if you excel in school, you graduate, go to uh, university, then you can join. I know for me it was a dream to join the, the foreign service. I thought that you have to have connections, but then it turned out if you can pass the exam, no matter who you are, you can get in. And this is how I got in. You have to work hard. As a woman, you're being under scrutiny, not like a man, a man can get away with things that we can't get away. Uh, people look at us, how Not we are dressed. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. Uh, how we are dressed matters, while it doesn't matter for the man, how we speak, uh, blah, blah, blah. So really, and, and, and of course, the responsibility, the family responsibility, how much you have. I was lucky to have a very supportive father, family, husband, Children, very, very, very supportive. And this is how I, uh, I managed. And, and, and responsibility distribution. You cannot carry the burden all on yourself simply because the day is 24 hours. So it's not, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I only worked hard and I uh, got uh, lucky, even though always my family so, tell, me, say, tell me, don't say lucky, you earned it, but so I say Mer lucky. Merua's question was, how did you engage with government leaders? So on the one hand, there were ah, the religious yeah. leaders and there were the government leaders. And, and that brings us back to the tension that I alluded to earlier in the morning. You worked for President Mubarak. Yes. And that itself is a cause for tension and cause for sure. questions. Sure. But you did it with upholding ethical values. And what you told me at that time was when your government asks you to serve, you serve because it is public service and you serve ethically and you make changes because you have the power to make those changes which you wouldn't have if you were outside of that administration. But you served a Mubarak administration. Sure. And I'm not going to elaborate more on that but because that itself is a cause for tension. Okay. Now, dealing with the religious leaders, dealing with government, both needs diplomacy. I discovered that even judges and lawyers know the know very well, but when it comes to the rights of the child or rights of women, they don't know. For, for, 
for cultural reasons, not for professional reasons. So you really have to uh, 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 preach for, for this, and you have to be a diplomat, and you have to focus on the common benefit uh, when, you, when you fulfill the rights of women or fulfill the rights of uh, children. It's for the good of everybody. It's not a zero-sum game. This is very, very important. And you have, you know, one of my skills, I, I, I am told, is creating consensus. Very important to create consensus whether to raise awareness against female genital mutilation, girls' education, or any, any case whatsoever. I am honored to have worked under President Mubarak, and I am honored to have worked with his wife, Mrs. Suzanne Mubarak, who gave a lot of time for women and children's issues. Uh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And uh, as, uh, as a diplomat, we never choose. We are assigned duties. So like I found myself sent to Vienna, Australia, South Africa, I found myself going to work for children and women. And I was in tears for two years from the shock. How do I leave my comfort zone where I excelled when I was ambassador in South Africa and I had this great uh, friendship with Nelson Mandela. He used to invite me for one-to-one -one lunch, and this is really where I learned human rights, Mandela, and how Mandela thinks, how Mandela looks at different issues, how Mandela, the first cause he committed himself to was the Nelson Mandela Children Fund, mm -hmm. and he donated all his salary for this fund. So, you know, it is an education. The whole thing is an education. Uh, I, it turned out that the job I hated or I was scared to take and I felt that my career has ended was a turning point for me. And this is a lesson for everybody. Sometimes you don't like something and then it turns out to be the best thing that happened to you. Now, very few people speak about my skills as a diplomat. You know, I reached Assistant Minister of Foreign Affairs, and then, whoop, they sent me to a completely different territory. But then this different territory earned me two highest decorations by the President of Italy for my work on female genital mutilation. I helped the Italians. Uh, on this, and I helped many African countries. So you never know what's good for you. I would say love what you're doing, excel in what you're doing, don't compromise, keep your moral values un, uh, unwavered. And uh, really, I, I feel now that I have been lucky. Uh, I was very angry at President Mubarak when he moved me from the service, the diplomatic service to children. I was dealing with his wife in tears all the time, and she saw me rejecting very much what I was doing. But now I say I'm very grateful for him and for her and for the local community who believed in me and helped me make the changes that now everybody is talking about. Without this confidence that I enjoyed from the local community, I would have never uh, uh, done it. And we have done great things in uh, for women and children, and now they are building on it. Now we have the highest number of female ministers in the cabinet, 30%. MPs. We, we never had this. And MPs, we have 89 uh, uh, MPs in the parliament. We never had this. 
And for the first time, we have a president who is defending the rights of women, not his wife. And it makes a difference because the president has executive power. His wife is a civil society. She doesn't have. Uh, I know there is a big issue about human rights. I know we have many problems. It's a cultural. We, you know, when you talk human rights, some people think it's a foreign notion. They don't know that human rights starts by my rights. It's an education, and we need to invest in this, and we have to get there because without human rights, no country can flourish. And this is our struggle now. This is the biggest challenge we have, but it is an education. I don't sit and point fingers. I have to be involved and try to make the change happen. It is really, and I have to say, Egypt ratified all human rights conventions. We took part in drafting all human rights conventions. We periodically submit our reports to human rights bodies, yet we're not yet there. But we need no country, no country is fully compliant with human rights norms. It's not just Egypt. With that said, I want, I've always said this, when Egypt's contemporary history is written, I know that it will celebrate and acknowledge your contribution to women's rights, children's rights, and the groundbreaking and bold and courageous ways in which you created the FGM law, which is a model to all other countries. We have one last question, Miriam, before we break for lunch. Miriam? Okay. I have to tell you that uh, the last seven years or the last eight years uh, has be, have been um, unique in our history. If you go through the history of Egypt, this is the first time that Egyptians really felt the boat, the boat rocking. And uh, many things were uh, questioned and, uh, you know, many things happened and I... I know what you're talking about, violence against women by the police forces during the 2011 uh, 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 uprisings. Uh, and all of this, all of this have been really uh, uh, an eye-opener for women's organizations that we were able for the first time to criminalize sexual harassment we were able for the first time to encourage victims of harassment to report and not to be ashamed because many women, like you have the Me Too uh, movement, 
Many women were abused, but they kept quiet because it is a social stigma to say that she's been uh, harassed or something like this. The taboo has fallen now, and women can report, and the perpetrators can be brought to justice. There has been a lot of criticism for the uh, alibi that the perpetrators used to say, but the woman was wearing revealing clothes. And that's why she invited harassment. This is absolutely refused now. Some verdicts appeared with this justifying the harassment that the woman or the girl was wearing open clothes or, or, or something. This is not acceptable now. So again, it's an education, it's a journey, and we have covered very good uh, grounds so far. And the seven years, 19, 2011 till 2018, I hope, I, I hope in 2019 I will say this is all behind us. I hope because we're still in it and it's not easy, really, believe me. It's, it's easy to sit and comment, but when you're inside the fire, you have to, to, to struggle. So I hope that this will be behind us. But women in Egypt now are very proud. For the first time, we have a constitution that criminalizes sexual harassment and violence against women. We have a constitution that speaks about non-discrimination clearly. We have a great constitution, and we are yet to pass the laws to implement the constitution, but we are insisting. And women, more than anyone, want this because women were the unsung heroes of the last seven years. And they emerged victorious, contrary to what you think and contrary to what many people may think. Why they emerged victorious? Because they were burned. And they were, you know, they were assaulted in the streets. So they fought for their rights, and they were more vigorous than when the state would fight for their rights. They forced the state, they forced the parliament to pass these uh, uh, laws. And now we have another battle that women are fighting for, is to change the civil status or the civil uh, status law. Yeah the marriage and divorce and this. This is uh, uh, the, 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 the area where we have discrimination against women very, very uh, unacceptable yes. for, Mush for Mushira, women. I'm going to give the last words to Ambassador Kai. And I know it's important for us to have this dialogue and this dialogue is going to spill over to lunch where we're going to have a robust dialogue after the keynote with, uh, with uh, UN Rep Special Representative Matt Nimitz. Uh, Ambassador Kai? Yes, uh, thank you very much. It's uh, two hours is a long time to be silent for uh, yes. uh, a <laughs> diplomat. Uh, I have listened uh, attentively to my, my colleagues and all the good questions uh, which have been um, asked uh, during the discussion. And I, I just want to make uh, two, two uh, short points, uh, actually, in reaction to those questions. One. Uh, was um, concerning the legitimacy of the in international uh, institutions. And uh, I think you, you really uh, hit the point there that, uh, I mean, pa power is um, not anymore the uh, kind of mo monopoly of uh, uh, the intergovernmental institutions. And uh, I see uh, cities, for instance, taking a much more 
power and, and action. I don't know if you're familiar with the Agenda 2030 and the Sustainable Development Goals, but um, in, in that field, in the field of development and implementing the goals, the cities have actually become the primary uh, actors, and we are talking about mega cities like uh, New York uh, and, and, and others. So uh, from, from our perspective, uh, diplomacy is, is changing. It's not anymore uh, diplomats talking to diplomats or governments to governments, but we, we try to include uh, other actors as well, cities, civil society. Including universities. Including That's universities, exactly, civil society, academia, also minorities, etc. Uh, the other point um, uh, was on... Actually, I, I can uh, tell you some inside uh, information from, from New York where the third committee is convening now. third committee is one of the six committees in the UN and it's uh, about uh, human rights. And as we speak, um, there's a discussion on uh, a resolution, General Assembly resolution on uh, female gender mutilation. And uh, actually, uh, the African group has introduced a, a, a draft a text which uh, uh, weakens uh, considerably uh, the text which has been adopted in the in the past uh, uh, years. So, uh, would appreciate if you get on the phone and uh, call Cairo and uh, give them some uh, strong strong instructions uh, and uh, look look into this uh, ma matter. Yeah, and uh, many other points, but uh, I think we can get back to them later. So uh, this is an immersive, intensive program. And so what we are going to do is ask you to go get your lunch so that we can continue to work through the lunch. The keynote is sharp at 12 o'clock uh, with UN Special Representative Matt Nimitz.